Um, hey, welcome to welcome back, welcome to RUF. I'm glad y'all are here. It's uh, yeah, it's a good it's a good thing to be back in RUF. It's a good thing to be uh, indoors this time again. We're still we used to be doing this outside, and it was tough. Um, so yeah, hey, I hope you had a great week. I week two. Anybody tired yet? Oh man, y'all, you can't be tired yet. We got a long ways to go. Um, yeah, so it's, it's been a busy week here. Uh, lots more to come. We'll be doing some uh, intramural sports. We'll be doing some more, uh, more stuff like that. So keep an eye. If you're not in our, uh, in our group me and you're curious about what we're doing, talk to Rachel and she would be glad to add group, group me and Instagram are the main ways that we, that we communicate. So that's how we will uh, try and keep, keep you in the loop. Um, so one of the things that we do at large group is we open the Bible and we start to we look at it, see what it has to say about our lives. Um, and we, I, we read some of it, and then I try to explain it, uh, because we think the Bible is God's Word. And if that is a question to you, I'd love to yeah, hear what your questions are. But we think it's God's Word, and we think it still has relevance, speaks to our lives today. And uh, so um, that's what we're going to do tonight. We're, and we've been looking uh, this semester so far, as of last week, uh, at Matthew's Gospel. Matthew is uh, one, of the, the, one of, kind of the biographers of Jesus. And uh, so we're looking at it, and the lens we're trying to take is the heart of the king. The heart of the king. And uh, why are we doing that? Why are we looking at this? Well, it's because I don't think you can make any argument that Jesus wasn't influential. In fact, kind of survey anyone who knows history, they would say the most influential person in history was Jesus Christ. Um, And yet... He was also probably one of the most misrepresented or misunderstood people, even to this day. Some people think of Jesus as kind of like a cosmic killjoy, like harsh, judgmental, cruel maybe, person who's judging people. Um, And then maybe on the other end, people think of Jesus as like this ultimate picture of inclusion and tolerance and anything goes. So you got the extremes. Um, For some of you, maybe Jesus just feels way out there. Just like, man, I'm a college student and Jesus has nothing to do with my life. It's just way, way out there. For some of you, maybe Jesus feels way back then. Like, that was 2,000 years ago. And that's just, that's a long time. And Jesus doesn't seem to say anything. Or, you know, maybe Jesus feels like something on a church felt board or on a stained glass window. Whatever it is... I think as, as all of us, we are in desperate need of re-encountering who Jesus is and why it matters. Uh, the most urgent we have needs we have, all of us, whether or not you recognize it or not, no matter how you're coming in tonight, I'd make the claim that we need to encounter anew, and more importantly, experience who is Jesus. Why does it matter? And so tonight, we're going to do that, and we're going to see two, one big thing here. We're going to see that God calls us to repentance and righteousness, and how Jesus fulfills repentance and righteousness. And so as I'm talking up here, if you have questions about anything I'm saying, shoot me a text. Uh, my phone number is on the piece of paper you have, and I will dialogue with those anonymously. I'm not going to say who you are uh, after I finish, and uh, we can have a little, a little uh, back and forth. Um, So I'm going to read this piece of the Bible, and then uh, we will look at it. This is God's word from Matthew 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, A voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. 
Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the regions about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his grain into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to, Jordan to, Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is God's word. Let me pray. Father in heaven, uh, we're coming in from so many different places tonight, uh, tired, maybe uh, worn out from a day of homework. Some of us are really excited to be here, and we want to study your word. Some of us don't know what we've stumbled into. Uh, And Lord, somehow your word uniquely meets us each at that place. And I pray that as we... Study it tonight for these brief minutes that your spirit would do what you do best and that you would speak to each of our hearts and show us the heart of the king and that it would be be a beautiful thing to each of us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So one of my most vivid memories growing up is sledding. I, uh, I grew up in Colorado, and uh, there we, had this, we had this massive sledding hill that was super close to our house, and it was massive. Um, it would, you know, with little kids trying to drudge up the snow, it would take like 15 minutes for us to climb up. But then it was just an awesome run getting down. And a few times a year, we would get like 12 to 18 inches of snow, and it was just like game on for the neighborhood kids. And we would just go and do reps on this hill because it was so fun. And, uh, you know, of course, lots of snow. Snow was flying everywhere. We'd get snow in our face, snow down our back. We'd have snowball fights. We would just be, I mean, just... You know what happened? Snow's cold. I don't know if you know this, but we would get really cold because we're just freezing and playing and you know wind and all this stuff, and so we just get frigid cold. And at the end of the day, we would all go back to my best friend's house, and we'd be sopping wet and freezing cold, frigid. And you know what we would do? We'd mix up some hot chocolate, right? And I know y'all have done this from when you come in from the snow and you're sipping this warm hot chocolate. And the hot chocolate tastes so good because it's in contrast to the cold, right? You're holding this mug of cocoa and you feel it warming you up and from the cold. If you just had a cup of hot chocolate and you were warm or even hot, you'd be like, ah, this isn't that great. But when compared to the cold, the hot chocolate is like, this is all I wanted. This is what I needed in my life was a cup of hot chocolate, right? And the idea that, you know, here is that the warmth is better when you know the frigid cold. The warmth is better when you know what what really cold is. And y'all, that's what our text shows us tonight. 
Our text shows us the sweetness and the comfort and the warmth of Jesus, but it only shows us that how beautiful it is in comparison to the cold and the rigors of the law. And so we're going to look at the cold first. We're going to go sledding spiritually. And then we're going to go see how Jesus warms us in his love, in his mercy, in his goodness. And so let's get cold and dive into this. It says, so the first thing I want us to see here is how God calls us to repentance and righteousness. So if you look back over the first six verses of what I just read, uh, I won't read it for it's long, but you know, Jesus is starting his ministry, um, but just before Jesus is getting, getting his, his work started, his cousin John kind of comes onto the scene, and his cousin is just kind of the kind of dude who makes you cringe when he walks into a party. You're like, oh, not this guy. He's just a little weird, definitely bucks social norms. Um, he kind of has this crazy look in the back of his eye, and uh, it just kinda, I mean, he would have been a fundamentalist back in the day. And John's out in the desert, and he's, he's doing the things that the Old Testament prophets would do. And the Old Testament prophets, they weren't people who necessarily predicted the future, um, but they were people who served as God's mouthpiece, right? So when they speak, it's the same thing as if God was speaking. And so here we have John doing this thing, and so speaking as in the place of God. And what does he say in verse 2? He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now what's going on here? What's going on here? Well, if you were to sort of rephrase that, paraphrase it in words that maybe are more accessible to us, what John is saying here, he's saying, turn your life around. Turn your life around. Because God's perfect government is here and he's balancing the scales. Turn your life around. God is coming to make everything that's wrong right. And there's an implicit statement in behind that of, and you're part of the problem. And that's, that's where the cold hits us, right? So behind this is the reality of what the Bible is calling, calls over and over again. It calls it sin, and what, what Matthew would call a failure of righteousness. And so sin, for John the Baptist here, he says it's any failure to live up to God's perfect plan and his law for humanity. And, so he's, and John, just, he's assuming, just straight up, something that was hard for us to understand, but was just, he's just assuming, he's like, hey, I know that each one of you who are listening to me speak, I know that you're doing things that God is not pleased with. Stop! I beg of you, stop, because God is coming to balance the scales. The Bible is very clear that God has uncompromising expectations for people, and it's summed up in love God with all your heart, wholeheartedly and love your neighbor as yourself 100% of the time every day all day long your whole life that's what God not only expects but demands of you and me any lapse means that we open ourselves up to God's judgment and so uh, God, and John's coming out saying God's judgment is coming stop judgment is here stop sinning God's government is here and he's going to bring his perfect assessment to each person, and none of us will measure up. And John ups the ante in verse 12, right? He says, he says, yeah, I'll baptize you with water, but God's perfect government, he's coming with justice and even punishment. He uses the word three, he, th three times he uses the word fire. He says any of those, any people who aren't on God's side will be subject to everlasting fire. And y'all, here's the doctrine of hell, right? Now, some of you are like, gosh, dang it, I fell into another 
Turner Byrne Christian Group. And I, we're gonna, we, remember, we're staying in the cold right now because, so we can get to the sweetness of the heart of the king. But the reality is, is that the Bible confronts us with our own brokenness. It shows us our own sin. It's, it's the doctrine of that God is fair to condemn and even damn people who do not turn from their sin. John is honest enough to look us in the eye and say, you're worse than you expected. You're worse than, you're worse than you think, and God knows it. Now, hearing this, we all have a bunch of different reactions, right? I know I do. I have, I, I, I have a bunch of reactions, but I'm going to bet that, that there, there's two main reactions when you hear something like this. The first is, man, this sounds a little harsh of God. This just sounds a little extreme. This sounds a little harsh. And then the second thing that I think we think is like, man, thinking about myself in that way just sounds super unhealthy mentally. Like, that just doesn't sound like self-care at all, and, I, and that's not what I'm about. So I'm going to try and deal with some of those. Of, is this cruel or unfair of God, and is this bad for our mental health, right? So the first question is, is this unfair or cruel of God? Uh, and the only way that it would be cruel or unfair of God to do this is if it wasn't true. If somehow you and I weren't actually in our natural state not deserving of God's judgment. And the only way that we could not deserve God's judgment is either if we lower the standard of God's holiness or if we raise our own moral standing, our own moral you know, virtue, or if we just kind of say like, I can explain myself. <laughs> I can explain myself. And so, you know, human nature, we're all trying to do one of those three. It's just like, well, God's standards aren't that high. Or, well, I'm, 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 not, I'm actually a pretty good person. Have you seen so-and-so? Or we'll just say, like, eh, I just, uh, it's not that big a deal. It's not that big a deal. So, you know, we, we, or, or we say, like, it's not my fault. I'm not, I'm, I'm a product of my circumstances. So we lower God's standards of holiness by reducing God. We say, well, God's just, he's this, he's this great Santa in the sky. He just, he just gives love, man. He just loves us. And, and yet, he, yeah, he, he's, he's good, but he doesn't demand perfection of us. Y'all, that's not the picture that the, that the Bible portrays of who God is. The Bible shows us a God who is holy, perfect, and who has a holy and perfect plan for his world. We also might try to say, like, well, I'm not that bad. You say, I'm not that bad. Uh, have you seen so-and-so? You say, well, I might look at porn every once in a while, but at least I'm not a sex trafficker. At least I'm not that bad. Or maybe we would say something, well, I might judge my classmate for getting wasted on a Saturday night. But, I, you know, I, 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 God says alcohol is a, you know, alcohol abuse is a sin, so I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad, God. Right? So we, we raise our standards and say, we're, we're, we're not that big a deal. Or we try to explain our behavior. We say, well, if you knew my family, you would know why I do the things I do. I'm, it's not my fault. It's, the, it's my family. It's where I'm coming from. If I had more money, or if I was, you know, it's part of my cultural heritage. We'll say, it's just my identity. This is who I am. I, I don't, I, I can't. And so we're all, Christian, non-Christian, we're all masters of deceiving ourselves, of saying like, well, I'm not that bad, or let me explain, or God is going to accept me either way. And so we just try to say like, this, this is just, this is cruel of God to judge me like this. This isn't fair. 
And, and the reality is, is that sin constantly is trying to deceive us. Sin is constantly trying to hide itself from us. Literally just last night this happened to me. I'd been studying this passage in preparation for tonight, like thinking about this, and then I was doing some yard work, and there was an issue, a particular thing in my mind. I was like, well, it's not that bad. I, I, could, I could, you know, and then I was like, oh my gosh. I'm doing it, and I'm studying, literally, I'm studying, talking about this, and I'm doing it. Like, we all are in the, we're all so adept at finding ways to excuse ourselves. And the biblical reality is that you and I are far more sinful than we think we are, and therefore way more deserving of God's judgment than we think. God's standard is perfection. Absolute perfection. And none of us can meet that standard. Things like never looking at another person and thinking how you could use their body for your, to feel good. Things like always treating your parents and your siblings and your friends and your professors with dignity, love, charity, and respect. The big one is like worshiping the living God of the Bible perfectly all the time. Like These are things that you and I never can do perfectly. And so the reality is, is like God is not unfair to judge us this way. And so then we think, well, golly, this just sounds so unhealthy mentally to think about myself in this way. How can I, like, this is not, this is not self-care. I, look, I'm already, some of you are saying, like, look, I'm already depressed, Jonathan. <laughs> I already hate myself. I talk with my therapist about this all the time. I don't need this kind of negativity in my life. And to you, you think sin just sounds downright mentally unhealthy. And to you, I would say you're treating, you're treating cancer with cough syrup. You're treating cancer with cough syrup. You're like the person who knows that something's wrong with their body, but you don't want to actually go deep enough to what's maybe actually wrong. It, you're the person who goes to someone who has stage 4 cancer and he says, eh, don't beat yourself up, go easy on it, drink some Robitussin, you'll be fine. Which one of those is mentally unhealthy? <laughs> of course it's the person who's not dealing with the reality of, of the problem. The person who just says, is just, is just treating cancer with cough syrup, that is, that is devastating mentally and it's devastating physically. The mentally most healthy statement would be to say, do whatever it takes to me to kill the disease within me. Do whatever you need to do to destroy the sin within me. And the same is here. Sin is a disease, and unless you're killing sin, it will be killing you. Repentance that John calls us to is a radical statement of don't accept yourself. Everything in our culture today, especially social media, says accept yourself for who you are. The Bible makes a radical claim that says, no, don't accept yourself for where you are. It's not good enough. But turn to the one who will give you total acceptance. That's, if those two things are just like really hard for you to understand, text me, we will dialogue about it, uh, and we, we can keep the conversation going. So John here, he specifically, he calls those, those Jews out, and he says, you know, he says, maybe you're not, to us he says, maybe you're not a follower of God, maybe you don't know Jesus yet. To you he would say, repent, be converted to God's side, come to his kingdom's side, admit that you're a sinner, naked before his judgment. That's where health and healing starts. The remedy to sin in our lives, in our society, is not denying it, not explaining it away, not minimizing it, 
It's admitting it. Repentance is not a good work to earn God's love. Repentance is admitting our bad works and turning to the love of Jesus instead. And John presses on even further. Look what happens in verse 7. A group of religious elites come up to him, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they're, they're intrigued. They're like, what's going on here? And, and John just goes ballistic on them. What does he say? He says, you brood of vipers, verse 7, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? He says, do works keeping with repentance, bear fruit. So he says, he says, you're the biggest problem of all of them. You guys, you're these Christians elite. These, you're the people who are religious, presumably. You're the biggest problem of all. You're the ones who need this repentance thing more than anybody. What's going on here? Well, the Pharisees, the Pharisees were like the moralists of the day. The Pharisees were like, well, we're religious, we're pious, we keep God's law, we don't need to repent. And the Sadducees were like the opposite. The Sadducees were like the religious liberals of the day. They were intellectual, they were inclusive, they were culturally savvy. And they were like, and eh, we don't need to repent. So you've got these two sides that are like, hey, we're good. We got this down. You know what John says? He says, you're worse than everybody. Both of them, he says, are looking to their own pedigree of their past. They're looking to their ethnic heritage. And, and, and it says, what does this say to us? It says that those of us, perhaps, who are in the greatest need of repentance are the religious experts. That's me. I'm a pastor. That's some of you who have grown up in a church your whole life. It means that you and I can be very serious about our faith and completely miss the point which is a big capital R repentance, which is turning from God, or turning from our sin to God, or the small R repentance, which is turning each moment of each day and saying, God, I'm more broken than I thought I was. I need you to help me. That's, that's what the Christian life is. So what do we make of John's message? Either John is like absolutely comically deluded, absolutely insane, or he's deadly serious. He's deadly serious. John is either absolutely out of his mind or he's right. And if you and I'm here to say that the Bible and human history, and if I think you're honest with yourself, your own heart, say that humans are sinners and that John is right and he calls us to repentance and to righteousness. Now, that's the cold air. That's the cold air. Let's drink some hot chocolate. Let's see how the God of the Bible, how Jesus, the heart of the King, moves towards us. So if God calls us to repentance and righteousness, let's look at how Jesus fulfills repentance and righteousness. Verse 13, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee. Notice the shift that happens. If you were to picture this in a movie scene, you've got... John just going nuts on people, saying, y'all are so much worse than you possibly thought, and you're going to die, what's the next words he says, in unquenchable fire. And then it's just like the camera goes, Whoop! and then Jesus came. Jesus comes out and starts his ministry, starts, starts his, 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 his sweet renewal, right? The frigid law all of a sudden starts to melt then Jesus came, unquenchable fire, then Jesus comes onto the scene. But what does Jesus do? He steps into the fray, he does something that kind of makes us go, what? He, he says, I want to get baptized. I want to get baptized. And so part of John's message of repentance is this rite of baptism. And, the, and in baptism, a person gets soaked in water, 
And uh, that soaking is the symbolizing of them giving up of their sin and turning to obedience. So baptism sort of represents a new start of saying like, hey, I'm going I'm I'm to turn from my old stuff and I'm going to turn to following God. And Jesus wants to get baptized? What is that about? Everyone's astounded by this. And John, John especially, he's like, um, no, I know who you are. You are not the one who needs to get baptized. In fact, you're the one who's, I just talked about him. You're the one who's going to come and you're the coming king. You're the one who's going to baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit. I should be baptized by you. You're the one who's... who's and, 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 and what does Jesus say in verse 15? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now what's happening in there? Man, there is so much happening in that verse. Uh, it's, and the key phrase there is to fulfill all righteousness. And what Jesus is saying here, he says that when I'm baptized, when you baptize me, I am identifying with us, and he is identifying for us. He identifies with us and for us. And we're going to look at each one of those and how it shows us the heart of the King and his love for you and for me. So let's look at the first one, how he identifies with us. Jesus says he wants and he needs to be baptized. Why? Well, not because of the reason that why you and I need to be baptized. Jesus is not a sinner. There's one thing Jesus is known for. It's that he did not sin. He doesn't need the washing or the spiritually cleansing that comes with baptism. No, the reason Jesus is baptized is that it's part of, in fact, it's perhaps the main part of his coming down to our level to experience the trials and the brokenness and the hardship and the pains of being a human. Have you thought about that before? Jesus wants to experience what it feels like to be a human being. Jesus wants to walk in the shoes that you're walking in. Jesus wants to fulfill righteousness with you. Think of it this way. Think of your favorite professor you have this semester. You all have one so far. You probably have, or if you've been here before, you've got the professor. You're like, man, I admire this professor, this woman, this man. They know their field. They're so good at it. They're probably, you know, they're probably highly published. They have a PhD. Probably they can lecture well. They make a topic come alive. They're just a great professor. Let's say, let's say this professor is a, is a mathematician or something. Imagine that you walk into college algebra one-on-one. It's not even it's not even calculus. It's just college algebra, and your favorite professor is sitting in the seats to take the class. They're sitting there to take the class, and they're sitting in these awkward, cramped desks with these weird flip-up tables, and they're left-handed, so they're like, I can't write, and they're trying to uh, they're tr- they're paying attention. And not only does he sit in does this professor sit in the class. But he does the homework. He does the whole class with you. He struggles through forum posts. He fights with the administration about Canvas and about Blackboard. He, know, he, he still does all the homework, even though he knows all the answers. He has communication problems with the teacher's assistants, all of it. This is the professor who wants to feel what it feels like to be a student, even though he's the best in the field even though she knows everything about it. That's Jesus. Jesus is perfect. He's utterly perfect, and yet he comes down and says, I want to feel what it feels like 
to be a human being and everything, all the struggles that go with it. Jesus is not some arrogant king way up there who just says, hey, I'm going to dispense justice, I'm going to make everything right, I hope you're on the right side of history. No, he comes down into the water, into the fray of being a person and walks with you in and through life. He knows every, He says, I want to know what it feels like to be a human. I want to experience being human. And his whole life was that process from his being born in a cow feeder to his baptism around a bunch of sinners to his embarrassing, public, shameful execution. Jesus relates to you and to me. He relates with you and me in our most humble and shameful and sinful moments. I mean, that's, a, that's amazing to me. That, that What does this show us about the heart of the king? That the king of the universe, King Jesus, is not way out there. But he came down and said, I want to feel what you feel. I want to experience what you experience, even to be, even to be baptized like you are being baptized. And this means that when, when you repent, when you say, God, I've done it again, I've messed up, Jesus is right there with you loving you, caring with you, caring for you. Or when you repent for the first time, you say, Jesus, I'm a bigger mess than I realized. I'm a mess before your perfection, and apart from you, I deserve nothing but wrath. Jesus is right there with you to say, I know, and it's okay. You're more broken than you think, and I love you more than you'd imagine. That's Jesus fulfilling righteousness with us. Now, the only way Jesus can identify with us is if he also identifies for us. Identifies for us. The core, this is so important, the core of the Christian message is that Jesus Christ takes all of our sin, all of my sin, all of your sin, onto himself. He says, everything that's wrong with you and me, all of that frigid, cold imperfection, he says, I want it. I want it on me. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says that Jesus became sin. Even though he was perfect, he became sin. Why? So that you and I might have what? The righteousness of God. Jesus came to fulfill righteousness on your and my behalf. He took sin onto himself. Martin Luther, who's one of the great theologians uh, ever to write about the Bible, he says this, Jesus' decision for baptism is as if Jesus wanted to say, although I am not myself a sinner, yet I now bring with me the sin of the whole world so that I am not only a sinner, but the greatest sinner in the whole world. Jesus' baptism is is Jesus saying, even though I myself am not a sinner, I want to bring the whole world of sin onto myself. Not only just to become a sinner, but to become the greatest sinner in the world. And y'all, three years later, Jesus Christ would be on a hill outside of Jerusalem and he would get baptized again. But this time it wasn't with water, it was with all the wrath of God, all the unquenchable wrath of God that was meant for you and me was poured out on Jesus Christ on a cross. He was baptized with fire so that we could be forgiven. He would die in the unquenchable fire that you and I deserve. Isaiah the prophet anticipates Jesus and he says, 
he says this, he says, out of the anguish of his own soul, he shall see and be satisfied, and by his knowledge, he shall the righteous one, my servant, that's Jesus, make account for the righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Luther says again, he says, Jesus was baptized not because he shares our need, but in order to share our need. Jesus took the identity of a sinner so that you could get the identity of a sinless one. But it gets better than this. He's not just interested in making you sinless. What happens when Jesus is baptized? Look at the text. Jesus is baptized, and what's the next thing that happens? The heavens are opened, there's a voice, and it says, Behold, twice. Behold, the Spirit of God descended, and behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The heavens opened up, and God the Father says, This is my, this is my beloved child. 